Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Traditionally, financial planning advice is either only for those who are already wealthy or salespeople calling themselves financial advisors who say they'll give you free financial advice but really just sell products to earn commissions. Fearless Finance takes a dramatic departure from either of those traditional models. Their entire business is built on making financial advice accessible and affordable because we know that financial literacy, stress reduction, and financial security are critical to overall well-being. I'm a little bit obsessed with Elizabeth, our Fearless Finance advisor. I've had an array of advisors in the past who answered questions like, should we be spending less on this with evasive answers like, it depends on your priorities. Not Elizabeth. She answers with actually helpful guidelines. You're spending more than the average family of five, or I'd like to see this increase by 6%. Uh, thank you. This is Fearless Finance's mission, to make advice affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually, and they charge you by the hour. You only pay for the time you use down to a quarter hour. Their planners meet with you where you are on your financial journey, no judgment. Visit fearlessfinance.com today. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit, and you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use the code Pantsuit. That's fearlessfinance.com and use code Pantsuit for $50 off your first planning meeting. The expansion of the population of unmarried women across classes signals a social and political rupture as profound as the invention of birth control, as the sexual revolution, as the abolition of slavery, as the women's suffrage, and as the women's rights, civil rights, gay rights, and labor movements that made this reordering of society possible. By their very growing presence, single women are asking for a new deal from their government. That's from Rebecca Traster, author of All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women, and the Rise of an Independent Nation, and our guest today. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode. We are so excited to have a very special guest on the show today. Before we get to our interview with Rebecca, we will be discussing the very disturbing violence at the recent Trump events. And before we even get started on that, we wanted to ask everyone to subscribe to our email list, which is pinned at the top of our Facebook and Twitter pages, and to check out our new website, PantsuitPoliticsShow.com, where we're taking pre-orders on Pantsuit Politics and hashtag Crazy Moderate t-shirts. So we have to get a certain number before we can order them, and so we just wanted to sort of gauge interest and see um who of you wanted to to show your pantsuit politics love to the world so if you're interested in a t-shirt go check it out so it was a tough weekend mm. 
as you probably saw, it was sort of unavoidable, even as I tried to hide from it in the midst of college basketball and a little bit of HGTV, I'm not going to lie. Um, it was still everywhere in the news that there was this um, rally in Chicago where uh, protesters and Trump supporters uh, had had encounters that eventually, and I'm going to say allegedly, prompted the Trump campaign to cancel the rally in Chicago. And then later in Dayton, Ohio, which is not far from where I live at all, a uh, protester attempted to rush the stage at a Trump event. There was some friction in St. Louis as well, and it just seems like we're reaching a fever pitch in terms of the campaign. And Donald Trump refuses to take any responsibility for the violence at his rallies. He sort of blamed, he half blamed uh, Bernie Sanders and said it was his supporters' fault. He said that he would pay the legal fees for one of his um, supporters who sucker punched a protester um, at one of the rallies. Really just completely defiant and... Um, taking no responsibility for this <clears throat> just boiling point that everything has reached. So I have trouble knowing how you how you even begin with someone who won't acknowledge the violence itself. You know what I mean? I keep seeing Trump um, on various media outlets saying like, well, my events aren't violent. My people, it's a love fest, you know? My people want peace. And, and that just seems like then they roll the tape of the actual events and it's just not true. And I don't I don't know what you do with someone who won't acknowledge reality. Well, it's like we've all had those arguments with people where you're like, well, actually, the studies say, well, you can make studies say whatever you want. And the sky is green and the grass is blue. And you just don't know how to respond with someone. It is so incredibly crazy making to try to argue with somebody like that. And I don't know. You know, this is neither is simultaneously disgusting and disheartening and not surprising. So many people have said that this is where this is leading, that his rhetoric um, will lead to actual physical repercussions and violence. And I don't think this is the end of it is the most disturbing part. Well, it's particularly disturbing when you think about his denial of what's happening and then the sort of manufactured quality of it. So I saw a great piece um, from Joe Scarborough in the Washington Post and a similar piece from Jonathan Capehart talking about how what happened in Chicago was as predictable. I thought this was a good line, as predictable as a, a rerun of The Celebrity Apprentice. Because, <laughs> Sorry. because anybody who knows this area of Chicago knew what was going to happen. Yeah, that's what my grandmother was actually talking, that she'd read something about this last night at dinner, and I didn't realize that this, that his insensitivity continued all the way to the locations he picked. And I'm not sure that it's insensitivity. I mean, the 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 allegation, really, of this opinion piece was that they did this on purpose, that the Why? Trump campaign knows that any time... Well, one, it wins the news cycle, and that happened, right? So Marco oh. Rubio has Marco Rubio has this remarkable debate performance. Um, I, I really thought it was the best of Marco Rubio's campaign, and the the debate overall was quite civil in a way that highlighted Donald Trump's policy deficiencies. Mm. 
So right on the heels of that, they leak the Ben Carson endorsement. Then they have the Ben Carson Carson endorsement. And then they have this rally in this area of Chicago where you know there's going to be massive protest. They cancel the rally despite the Chicago Police Department saying, really, we've got it. We aren't worried about security here. I mean, it, it does kind of feel like this is just another publicity stunt. Uh, I just the disingenuous disingenuousness of it all and it just leaves me wondering like do you really want to lead is this what this is about because I've gone back and forth I started thinking Donald Trump was you know just in it for the publicity and this was sort of half of a joke and then I came around to okay he's serious but either and actually I had a thought this weekend which is, if you've ever been around celebrities, and I'm not, I mean, I don't hang out with celebrities all the time, but I've been around several when I worked in Washington, D.C. and on a couple trips to L.A., and I've talked to friends who work sort of in the entertainment industry, and if you've been a celebrity for long enough, you you get surrounded by yes-men, and you have this sort of groupthink dynamic, and it's almost like they lose the ability to judge independently in a way. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if that's what's happened to him is he just has people telling him what he wants to hear. He has no sort of independent reasoning to see how not only just how awful this is for the country, but even more cynically, it's not good for his campaign and it's gross and it's, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the only thing I can think is he's just so out of touch with reality and the people around him aren't helping him stay in touch with reality. Ivanka, where are you, girl? I, I feel like you're a reasonable human being. Where, where are you? Well, he's either so out of touch with reality or so in touch with it and motivated by something we're not seeing that he's manipulating everything. Like I always look at Donald Trump and think, okay, Beth, see the matrix, like try (laughs) so hard to see the matrix. And so there's this little cynical voice in my head that is constantly saying, is he working toward an out? Because I can't imagine him going into the general election and risking losing. It's just hard for me to imagine somebody with his ego taking that risk Now, maybe he thinks he'd win the general, and maybe he's right. I don't know. But there's a piece of me. So he said in Dayton at his rally, um, when the protester kind of rushed onto the stage, he threw his arms up and he said, to think what a, something like, to think what a good life I have. Like, do I really need this? Yeah, I mean, the the particular, like, him being surrounded by by Secret Service and all that, I thought, how can this not sort of give him pause, just as a human being? Well, so there's a point where you almost wonder if he's building to, I'm going to graciously exit the race now because I just don't need all this headache or, you know, some kind of out. Now, maybe that's wishful thinking on my part. Um, I don't know. I just have a hard time imagining that he's serious about all of this. But I also have, from the beginning, underestimated the anger felt by the people, you know, the 30-ish percent of Republicans who support him. I've, I have underestimated every step of this, so I could be completely wrong. But it just, none of, it does not feel 
real to me, and and it especially doesn't feel real to me that there are real consequences happening. Like, you can see people with, like, blood on them walking away from some of these skirmishes, and and so him denying that reality feels even less real to me. Maybe, I mean, my husband said all along that he doesn't actually want to be president. That may be that he's just pushing it far as he humanly can. But sort of what I was thinking, too, is along the lines of just Donald Trump as a celebrity, is this... Surely he understands that this is hurting his brand. Right. Like, you're losing people who maybe would have bought a Trump stake or maybe would have invested in Trump property and now will not want to have anything at all to do with you. Now, maybe he's betting that he's gaining more true fans that he can exploit in some other manner. I don't know. I don't really think it's... I don't think it's that... I don't think he's that savvy of a businessman. Just because he's halfway decent at publicity doesn't mean he's actually good at business i don't know i i think he's more than halfway decent at publicity and i think he's pretty good at business and i don't know what the calculus is in terms of like i have all the diehards but none of the moderates uh for votes or dollars spent on your stuff i just don't know it, it's just getting well i i really related to marco rubio when he um said to reporters this weekend like it's just getting harder every day he looks so like he looked physically ill and that's in that um video clip that you posted of him saying like i don't know like he j- he f- looked like a man with a real internal struggle <laughs> well something he said that wasn't caught in that particular clip that i posted and i don't know if it was the same press conference or not but He's been talking about how if Donald Trump is the nominee, he'll define what it means to be a conservative for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I think that is as troubling to him because I think Marco Rubio, for a lot of his faults, has some pretty deeply held conservative principles. Some of them like way more conservative than mine. Right. Um, But I think that he's genuine about those. I I think he has some ambition. I think he has been too influenced by people running his campaign. You know, we've talked about the kind of robotic moments, but I do think he believes a lot of what he says. And I think he is genuinely kind of conflicted by like, do I support I'm I'm not going to be the nominee, most probably. I mean, it, it doesn't look like... He's like 20 points down in Florida Ugh. right now, which is hard to believe. He's telling people in Ohio to vote for Kasich. Wow. Um, you know, so I think he's at this reckoning moment where he's like, it's not going to be me. Can I even vote for this guy? You know, yeah. can I vote? I'm a sitting United States senator. Can I vote for my own party? That mm. is quite a dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. And... I- I just don't know the answer to this, the nastiness and the violence. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know what it is either. And I know that it's not um, Friday, so we're not technically doing feedback. But I do want to mention, you know, we've gotten a couple of messages that have this flavor of like, I just don't know if I'm going to vote in the primary. This election is just wearing me down. And I completely yeah, so we said, First, let us say, we feel you. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I mean, let me tell you how many episodes of Fixer Upper I've watched just to watch something else. But I think that this is where, and, and I always believe in voting for, not against. But I am kind of coming around to this idea that I need to be passionate about the act of voting, even when I'm not passionate about a candidate. 
And particularly in this cycle, when I'm not passionate about a candidate, I need to be passionate about casting that vote. Because some of what need, you know, Trump loves the numbers. And so the numbers, I think, need to start chipping away at Trump. You need more turnout on the Democratic side. You know, you need more Democrats voting in this primary. I know that a lot of Democrats are kind of like, well, I don't love either or I love both. Either of them would be great. That's fine. You still need to come out because part of Trump's shtick is like, look at these hundreds of thousands of people who've never voted before who are registering Republican and voting for me. Like other side needs to meet that challenge. Right. And I just think this enthusiasm gap needs to be closed and more Republicans obviously I think need to get out. And even if you don't love all of your options and even if your option is Trump, like we just need people voting. Yeah. Because that's I, the only way we get through this. Right. I think at the at a certain point we're all voting for a different, a different vision for America. Right. Maybe this, maybe, yes. maybe the end of political, you know, it feels like he's making the polarization worse but maybe not. Maybe right. Donald Trump is the answer to polarization because no matter how you feel politically, we can all agree he's terrible. So maybe he's the unifying factor that may, finally gets us over this. Liberals are the downfall of America. Conservatives are the downfall of America. No, no. Trump is the <laughs> the downfall of America. Well, I heard Nicole Wallace say this morning, like the never Trump movement in the Republican Party needs to sit down after Ohio and Florida and have a little chat with itself about what are we and what can we realistically accomplish. And that could mean a Republicans for Hillary Clinton kind of movement. Yeah. And, you know, that would be weird. I mean, it's a weird world we're living in. We, <laughs> Chad and I had the CNN Democratic town hall on just for a few minutes uh, before we went to sleep. And Hillary Clinton was talking about something. I can't remember even what it was, but she stopped. And I looked at Chad and I said, well, I agree with everything she just said. And and I, you know, up is down. I don't know what's happening. Right yeah. now. <laughs> That's where we are. And I'm more open to it than I've ever been. And the same with some of what what Bernie Sanders is talking about. So, um, I, you know, I remain in the case at camp as long as there's hope alive there. But it's it's getting very tough. And so maybe we can all come together around some kind of platform. And hopefully that 30 ish percent that is so passionate about Trump. I mean, we probably write some of that off. But I hope that the stuff underlying it that is motivating it, that is legitimate and important and somewhat nuanced, we mm-hmm. can, you know, work through. Because there there, there are things to work through, right? We, America needs to have a conversation about some of the issues right. that have, have caused the beginnings of this. And I'm going to say the beginnings because I think that the growth of it has been a, a master PR strategy on his part. Well, and I think that it's always important sort of in this weekend when it was getting so ugly for me, you know, go outside, (laughs) hug your kids, go to church. If you go to church, don't go to church if you don't. But I mean, I'm just saying like be a part of your community, go be, be with your family, take a walk, remind yourself that we still, you know, that is not the entirety of the American experience. That's not the entirety of my experience or your experience like it's really important not to let not we can't all be consumed by the ugliness like we have to remind ourselves that that is not the entire story yeah i think the biggest way to counteract the trump message is to say america's already great Mm -hmm. you know yep 
Okay, so moving on to something infinitely better than talking about the violence. (laughs) Um, Donald Trump, next up will be our interview with Rebecca Traster, the author of All the Single Ladies, and we couldn't be more excited. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We use our phones for everything at this point, but did you know that you can use it for some sexy me time? Don't worry, your fantasies are safe with Dipsy. Just don't forget to use your headphones. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with vampires, Greek gods, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy written stories to read. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time. Explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or even heat things up with a partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. My son Oliver is almost two. The desire for more hours in the day has never been more real for me in my life. An extra hour for reading, for sleeping, for working, for playing. I could use any of it. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to then make it a priority. Therapy can help you figure that out, help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Just last week, my mom actually asked me about my experience with BetterHelp after hearing ads like this one for it. And I'm telling you what I told her. BetterHelp was the perfect solution for me in a time of my life when I had too many plates to juggle, but still very much needed to talk to someone about the experience of keeping all those plates in the air. BetterHelp made therapy easy and accessible right when those were qualities I needed most. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. You just fill out a very brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. So we are so excited to be here with Rebecca Tracer, author of All the Single Ladies and Big Girls Don't Cry, two of my favorite books. I just finished All the Single Ladies. Beth just finished Big Girls Don't Cry. Um, we really we're just going to dive right in with our, first the All the Single Ladies, because that's your new book just out. Great. Uh, tell us a little bit about where the idea for the book came from and why you decided to write to write about the rise of the independent nation. Well, um, I'm very interested in, um, you know, 
I, it actually came to me um, in the months before I myself got married in my early 30s. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't feeling at all ambivalent about getting married. I was very excited to be marrying the man I was marrying. But I was also acutely aware of the fact that I'd had this, you know, sort of full life. I was, It wasn't the beginning of my adulthood, as it had been for my mother, who married at 21. She went on to have a career. She was an English professor, got a PhD. Um, but it wasn't for her, uh, you know, for her, she did all of her making friends, building her career, getting her um, secondary education alongside my father, her husband. And for me, I had done all the work of building my life um, not in the company of a romantic or sexual partner. I had made my friendships. I had made my career. I found my home in New York City. I gained some economic stability. I, I mean, I had a full life, and I was, I was merging it or, you know, hitching it up to <laughs> another person who had a full life. And so I thought about how marriage meant something very different. And I, I was very interested in the work that's been done on marriage by historians, including Stephanie Coons and Nancy Cott. But what I thought hadn't been explored enough at that point, and I think it, you know, it still hasn't, is, is women living independently in the United States and having these lives that are outside of the institution that has historically organized the population. Well, I have to tell you, it was a really interesting sort of mental exercise reading the book myself because I was married at 21 as well. I grew, you know, I grew up in the South. I went to a Southern college. I had a, a candlelight. Beth was there actually, cause we're in the same sorority where we passed around a candle and we got engaged. It's like, Oh really? Thinking, oh yeah. What year was this? This was 2003. I got married in 2003. I've been married for 12 years. I'm 34. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I got married, you know, we, we would pass around a candle and blow it out if you got engaged and celebrate. I don't remember doing candlelights for, like, grad school acceptance. You I feel like, I yeah. mean, I, well, I, I, in no way do, do I want to um, malign the, um, <laughs> the, the sorority's uh, practices, but that seems depressing, blowing out a candlelight. Forgetting that's so true. Yeah, you're, like, extinguishing something. <laughs> I hadn't even thought of it. Yeah, that's Sorry. So Sorry, flame. You're yeah, done. You're done. <laughs> So yeah, I did that. I got married really young. And then, oh my gosh, when you talk, when you quote Judy Bloom as saying her college degree hangs over her laundry machine, my law degree is literally over my washing machine. Now that might say something for my, the end of the love affair with the law profession more than anything else that I have. <laughs> but right, right. Um, it was just, you know, that sort of the central, one of the central ideas of the book is that this is how we value women. This is sort of the framework within, within which we, you know, place, this is how, we decide what women are worth is their sort of their roles within marriage and family, especially motherhood. And what Beth and I were just talking about, I know, Beth, how old were you when you got married? Um, I was 24 when I got married. I had my first child at 30. Okay. Yeah, I, I delayed motherhood, so I, I didn't have my first child until 28. Well, delayed if you get married at 21, I guess. But um, and what we were just talking about is that even though, you know, we sort of took the more traditional path. I did things quote unquote in the right order. I think mm -hmm. that there's still so much to be said for the, the internal conflict that builds up for women and how, you know, damaging that is. And the idea that, you know, loneliness is to be avoided and you can only find fulfillment inside marriage and motherhood and that real companionship, companionship only exists within all these ideas. You sort of take apart bit by bit within the book. I thought, it was it really was so empowering and so good, even for somebody, like I said, who sort of is functioning within the 
the traditional method. I was thinking about, you know, I lost a pregnancy between my second and third child. And I'm when, sorry. Yeah, when you when you have that, it's like it. I think that you see that a lot with women when they tackle something like that because that's what you're told. That's what you're supposed to do. That's how you're sort of. Your value is in with motherhood, and when you struggle with any sort of infertility or pregnancy loss, I really think you see that women kind of run up against those walls. Right. Well, you know, one of the points that I try to make in the in the book is that it's not just a there's. I'm not trying to distinguish between some binary choice where there's mm-hmm. married life and unmarried life, and basically the thing I'm trying to write about in this book is what happens if you take this one model for how women's adulthoods are supposed to go and you remove it. It's this model that we've lived by by centuries, for centuries, where adulthood kicks off, is kicked off by marriage and is defined by it because men have more economic power, more technical power, more social power. And so the man to whom you are married, if you are a woman, and we're talking in, in heteronormative senses here as, you know, that was what marriage was until very recently, um, and that this is simply how the nation was organized. And uh, and that if you take that off, what what you get is a whole variety of options. It's not like, oh, then you just have single life. Then mm-hmm. there's some other alternative. What you get is any kind of, any number of variations that allow women more freedom to uh, exert some control over their, um, over their paths. Um, and that may mean early marriage is good for you. It may mean late marriage. It may mean no marriage. It may mean same-sex partnership or um, hetero partnership. It may mean periods of monogamy, periods of uh, celibacy, periods of, you know, of sexual promiscuity. It may mean children outside of marriage. It may mean a brief marriage. You know, it could mean there are all these – there's an infinite variety of, of um, possibilities that wind around – um, not only love and sex and, you know, maybe parenthood or not parenthood, but work and friends and cities and travel and money and, you know, and, and, it, and there's just a, there's a greater scope of possibility um, for women who are not all going to be nudged down this one highway um, and told from birth, basically, that this is what their adulthood is going to equal. Um, there's there's just a sort of explosive set of possibilities, and that's what the book is about. Yeah, and I think that is so empowering because when you open up a wider path, it's like it, like I said, it just it feels like you are detaching the idea that the value can only be found on that one path. And so when it it's so empowering to feel. And I feel like, like you said, like when it becomes binary and it feels like, well, you made the wrong choice by getting married, which I never felt once reading the book. Um, oh, good. I'm glad. No, no, I'm glad. no. I really no, didn't no, need no. it. No, Many not of my dearest friends are married early. No, no, well, no. Actually, no, only a couple of them. But yeah, <laughs> yeah when I went to law school, so I, I live in, I grew up in Kentucky. When I went to law school in D.C., you know, all my friends from college were married and I got to D.C. in law school and none of my friends in law school were married. And they were like, you're married. I'm like, you're not. Everyone I know is married. <laughs> Why aren't you guys married? It was really funny. But no, I never wow. felt that. And I think that. But when you when you really do open up the options and you allow a wider path. You allow a, lo- a wider discussion for you, you detach that path from value. You detach that, you know, you you are valuable to us because you follow the rules and did things in the right order. When you say, well, there isn't a right order. You can do it however right. you want. And I think that's just that is really empowering. And so I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, you talk a lot about sort of the 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 government's role in the idea of the sort of the independent nation and women's changing paths and where do you feel like 
the government is sort of really failing this everywhere when it comes to women <laughs> the government is failing everywhere i mean you you name it um a sort of failure to adequately um enforce equal pay protections and protect them um a you know lily ledbetter was great but it's a very small step toward you know really addressing the problem of a gendered pay gap let alone a racial pay gap um and, uh, you know, failing to mandate paid parental leave, which is so crucial to so many um, single mothers, failing to, um, you know, a, failing to make up for a history in which women were disenfranchised mm-hmm. and a, as were people of color and only white men had the franchise from the founding and it's been protected ever since. And, um, you know, that means that there's been an overwhelming period over two centuries of white male political representation that doesn't represent the actual populace or its needs. Um, you know, the the sort of failure to have paid sick days, the, the you know, um, the number of abortion restrictions, you know, this is a this is medical procedure that is legal and that the Supreme Court said was legal, you know, um, decades ago, but that has essentially become illegal and inaccessible in many parts of the country. Um, and that, of course, thanks to the Hyde Amendment, isn't available to poor women who rely on Medicaid um, insurance, which creates in- enormous economic inequality. Um, the sort of, uh, you know, the, the kind of tax breaks for the crew to married people, the, the way in which historically um, married, particularly white married Americans, have benefited from certain government um, boosts in terms of, um, you know, subsidized housing, uh, you know, the government needs to provide better early education um, and child care for kids. All these things that basically, I mean, the government is arranged, is built, and our public and economic and social policies are built around the idea that Americans live in these partnered, hetero-partnered mm-hmm. units in which there's somebody out there earning <clears throat> And, you know, in many ways, the government has has enabled men to be earners, whether it's, and, you know, to take on a sort of um, provider role, whether it is by um, giving them tax benefits for marrying, you know, um, building the infrastructures that permit them. This is the Elizabeth Warren speech that she gave years ago. You know, you didn't build that. Um, really comes down to acknowledging, and this is a lot of the work that Ta-Nehisi Coates has done too, acknowledging the ways in which the government supported um, white male economic power throughout its history, through business loans, through um, you know, through education benefits that didn't apply to right. other to people of color or to women, to um, to housing subsidies, the creation of the suburbs and the white middle class in the middle of the 20th century. There are all these ways in which the government has really um, boosted white men's prospects. That doesn't mean that white men across the country are doing well. Lots of people are doing very poorly in this age of, you know, um, in which there's high rates of unemployment and everything. I'm not suggesting that, you know, white men universally are wealthy. But but as sort of groups, the government has done a lot for white men and much less for other populations. And so a lot of the things that I'm naming um, that need to be done, you know, for women would benefit actually women and men. They benefit married women and unmarried women. But in part, they've been made starker. The necessity for them has been made starker by the fact that the marriage patterns have changed and that you now have a lot of women 
living outside of these married units. Now, you have a lot of men living outside those units, too, but men's independence has always been more possible in the world, and women's independence remains pretty revolutionary, and there just aren't the things in place that support it. Rebecca, when you talk about um, making up for all this time that women have been disenfranchised, I mean, that seems key to me to everything else that you that you said about what government can be doing is changing what government looks like to be reflective of those constituencies. Um, Can you can you say um, to our listeners, many of whom are young women considering public office eventually, um, Mm -hmm. what 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 you think that path currently does or should look like for them and how you would approach uh, public service as a woman, because it looks to me like even though those doors are technically open for women, social media is kind of creating uh, a new set of obstacles for women who consider being in the public eye in any way. You mean in terms of abuse on social media and stuff Absolutely. like that? Absolutely. And harassment? Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, here's the thing. It is, it's pretty hard. This is one of the challenges. Uh, you know, it's very interesting. There, there have been periods of my career as a reporter where I've asked, um, you know, women in politics, how did you get into politics and what made you run? And there, it's very interesting because so many people had to be asked over and over and over again. And of course, mm-hmm. that's what a lot of organizations find, that you have to ask the woman over and over again. You have to tell her again and again, you'd be great, you'd be great, you'd be great, you should run, she should run, we nominate all this. There are all kinds of programs trying to get women into politics. There are some other women, and here I think of um, a great Georgia politician named Stacey Abrams, who says, like, I was, I was born with a sense of responsibility to serve, right, who don't think of it as, you know, having to be talked into having an ambitious career, but rather that it's a responsibility to serve the community through um, being a part of the, the political infrastructure and through being a representative of a constituency. So there's that, too. I mean, I think that, you know... I, I'm because I'm not a politician and I'm not, you know, my job is more analysis than actually doing the organizing of some of these groups that get women into politics and educate them. I may not have the best answer for how to motivate women except to say that, you know, we have to get over some of the, the fact that that women have been underrepresented for so long leaves us with this idea that it's somehow not natural for us to be the politicians, for us to Mm -hmm. be the leaders. We have to, you know, and this is stuff we have to work through both systematically by seeing more women in power and and allowing our eyes to adjust to the fact that um, that women, you know, can be leaders in a in a way that doesn't, you know, marginalize them or make them aberrations or make them freakish. That this is, in fact, a great model of adult womanhood is to be politically engaged, to be a leader to be ambitious, to want to serve whatever framing makes the most sense, um, and that this is not a this is not an unusual choice. That this should not be some unusual choice for a woman. But that takes generations and years of again adjusting our eyes to new models of female leadership. Um, Go ahead. I, I was just when you were saying adjusting your eyes, I thought of something like. You know, you talk about, I forgot the quote you used, but it reminded me a lot of Bell Hook's quote. She says something about, like, it's basically, it's easier to pass laws and change the way you feel about people who live across town than the person who lives, who sits across the table from you. And I was just thinking about sort of the, the rapidity of change within the LGBT community because people were sort of coming out of the closet and um, seeing people they loved um, come out of the closet. And I wonder why we haven't seen I mean, I guess in a way your book is arguing we have seen a sort of rapid change in the way um, 
women function in our society, but how come we're not seeing sort of the same huge legislative change and government um, sort of, you know, do you see what I'm saying? Like it's, it happened so quickly in that community because people were seeing it in their personal lives and there's nothing more personal than gender and seeing the women you love function in a different way in society and the barriers they come up against. So why are we not seeing, but we still don't have well, paid leave, not, you know? I, I guess I'm not sure. I'm, we don't have paid leave, but we did, you know, women have, there have been enormous gains for women. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that that's good and that we should just be satisfied with that. But I think that I'm not sure that it is always useful to compare different um, different sets of oppression, especially since so many of them are shared by, by so many right. people and the different paths towards social progress. I don't think it always produces... Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that the comparisons are always useful because, um, you know, the way that we feel about gender and about women is very threaded through with how we feel about, um, you know, the, the gay and lesbian rights movement, the gay marriage movement and how we feel about the civil rights movement and how, and all those kinds of, um, you know, various kinds of social economic, subjugation are all interconnected to each other, but they also, they, you know, people play different kinds of roles in other people's lives. And one of the things that, that, you know, when you cite that bell hooks line about it's, you know, easier to change people's, you know, it's, it's harder to change the way you feel, easier to change the way you feel about the people across the street. I mean, one of the things at the beginning of my single woman's book, Susan DeAnthony is saying in 1877 is we can change the laws. When she's saying we have to go through an era, in 1877, she gives a speech called The Homes of Single Women. And she predicts that in the future, we'll go through an epoch in which women and men stop marrying each other. And the reason she says that is she says, um, we can change the laws to be on the side of gender equality, but we can't change the attitudes of the men and women who are used to living with each other in these kinds of configurations and, you know, have it in their heads that these are the gender splits. And we actually have to separate them and not have them live together to repeat these gender inequities. And she actually also makes a comparison to race. And she says, just as when you, you know, just because, um, you know, the slaves were freed doesn't mean that it changed racist attitudes in people's heads. Um, One of the things that makes, has always made the women's movement unique is that everybody has women in their lives. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Um, there's not, there are lots of stories of social progress, um, you know, uh, in which a variety of people can react with intense hate or with, you know, a swift embrace, in part because the group in question is somebody who maybe they don't have a lot of contact with. Right. And so that can both that can both make it harder and faster to to move forward with those right with women so many attitudes because we, everybody has some woman who is in their life a mother a sister a daughter a wife a friend a boss uh, you know women are fifty one percent of the population and so it makes it quite difficult and there are so many women with so many different experiences and perspectives. It's one of the reasons that you hear there's been such animosity on the left about whether or not Hillary Clinton is part of the establishment, right? Mm -hmm. Because here is a woman who is, of course, we've never had a woman president. She is the definition of an outsider. And yet, 
she is wealthy. She comes from a powerful political family, a very powerful political family. She is white. She has all kinds of establishment credentials. So how do we make sense of this? But this is actually a much broader broader issue when we talk about the women's movement. And so even when there are arguments about, say, paid leave, it is far easier to look alongside, you know, to see your wife or your daughter who has, you know, six weeks paid leave from her company and say, this is fine. You know, there are so many different experiences of of what it means to be a woman about what 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 advantages and disadvantages different women enjoy or or suffer from depending on their circumstances. There are so many competing perspectives and experiences that it's very hard to absorb the notion of women as a class in many right. instances, which can make it much more complicated to advance the cause of women's liberation and equality. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm not giving an excuse as to why I'm not giving an excuse as to why this is the case. But it's one of the reasons that it's challenging to talk about women's advancement. And there have been, you know, the, you know, the the legalization of contraception, both within married for married couples and then later with I that be Baird, um, for single people, um, the legalization of abortion. There have been um, you know, major major steps um that I think are comparable to gay marriage decision. And it did happen swiftly. But you know, some scholars like Linda Hirschman have argued that in part it's because it was such a concentrated effort that there was no, and it's hard to concentrate a women's movement because there are so many competing priorities. It is. It's good. Right. It's one of the things that makes the women's movement healthy. And hey, I had an internship at now. Believe me, I understand. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's hard to, you can't just pick out one priority for the women's movement. Um, and, you know, I think there are people in the gay rights movement who would say, the, the prioritization of marriage was perhaps not the thing they would have chosen, but even so, it was it was a concentrated effort toward this goal, and it's much harder to get um, women to concentrate on a single goal. Well, and I thought one of the most profound moments for me when I was reading, I read Big Girls Don't Cry after the election, so several years ago, but I will mm-hmm. never forget the part about um, how it was sort of this confluence of events of, when Hillary, you had Hillary and Sarah Palin talking about the talk about the diversity of women, <laughs> diversity of mm-hmm. perspectives, but um, and that there was this confluence of Katie Couric being there and she could ask questions and not seem like a jerk with Sarah Palin, yeah. and that you had Tina Fey and Amy Poehler being the first female um, SNL writer, and that they could illustrate sort of the the sexism the different types of sexism directed at Hillary yeah. and Sarah in such an enlightening way, in such an illuminating way. And I thought like, yeah, the answer isn't like we need this one female perspective. We just need more female perspectives of all kinds. That's what's right. going to be. And they happening at the same time. And in these really great ways that they all kind of came together and, and allowed things to happen and allowed viewpoints to come across that wouldn't have otherwise. Right. Right. I thought that I will never I talk about that part of the book at least every at least once a month. I'm like, well, there's this really great book. And she talks about Mm. how this they were there and they were there. And then that's why that was so important and everything. That's funny. That's interesting. Yeah. When you think about where the government is failing single women, you know, we've kind of gone through those possibilities. I'm wondering if there are things that you think the private sector um, could do without government that would be uniquely empowering for single women, and if, if that's even possible. 
Well, the problem is, yeah, there are certainly things the private sector can do, but the problem is most of them lead toward greater economic inequality. Mm-hmm. So there are things that the private sector is already doing. I mean, I wrote a piece for the New Republic when I was on my maternity leave last year at this time, actually. Um, I was on maternity leave for my second child. And in part, it was because of the New Republic, a, a man from um, Silicon Valley had come in and instituted a new set of policies that were a lot like the Silicon Valley policies. Um so that I got four months of paid leave, which is crazy. For my first child, I hadn't gotten any leave. Um, so what you see increasingly in some of the Silicon Valley companies, some in the private sector, um, is the, are these really humane benefits, right, that are, that are not really close exactly to what most of the rest of the world has, but closer than we've ever been before. You know, sometimes 16 paid weeks. And compared to the zero paid hours that we are guaranteed in this country, Mm-hmm. Um, this is a massive revolution, and I I have benefited from from this um, myself. You know, many women benefit from it. There are other things. You know, you, you've probably seen all the, um, you know, pay, uh, companies that are willing to subsidize egg freezing and reproductive intervention. All these kinds of things that I think that the, that I wish that our I wish we had a universal health care system, and I wish that it. Um, paid for reproductive intervention and, uh, you know, and that all those technologies were available to women across the economic spectrum. Um, you know, so those things are wonderful. I applaud Google and Facebook, and I know that there's a lot of critique about, oh, they're just trying to lure. Well, okay, yeah, they're trying to lure women by providing um, by providing benefits that make sense for women's lives. It is a case of the private sector sort of acknowledging these changed circumstances for women um, much more swiftly than the government has. So on the one hand, I applaud it. Great. I think it's terrific. I, I would like to see more companies adopt these kinds of policies of, of paid leave, of generous paid sick days, of higher minimum wages. You've seen some of that actually happening. Um, I believe Facebook um, raised wages um, and also for, for companies they contracted with. Um, so you've seen some of these steps forward by private companies. That's terrific on the one level, except it just creates this wider chasm because it's not federally mandated, you have people, and because a lot of these companies that are doing this are high-end companies, where already privileged and, you know, expensively educated people are are employed, you are seeing an accrual of privilege and benefits and support going to people on the top end of the economic spectrum, and which is only widening the chasm of possibility between them and those who do not benefit from these kinds of private. That's why we need federally mandated programs. Um, so that everybody can benefit. That's right. You know, it's like, it's as if, you know, what if, what if Social Security had, you know, like it only applied to people who worked in the tech industry? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, that's seriously, right. that's what it's like. That's right. what it's like. No, we now, Social Security has been, has now been around for so long, and when it was implemented, it didn't apply to agricultural or domestic workers, and so left out enormous numbers of people of color. And when the California sick day legislation passed a couple of years ago, it let, it's left out home health aids, which is predominantly female field and, and many of the women of color. So there are these gaps even when you have state intervention that need to be plugged. But basically that's it's it's sort of the same thing as if if we've just left Social Security, which we now take for granted, and of course we're not in any position to take it for granted for much longer. Um, but if we just left Social Security to the private sector and so people who worked in, you know, great law firms or in Silicon Valley got Social Security, but the rest of the country didn't. That's really that interesting. Would seem, that would seem pretty stark, right? Right. No, right. And I think, 
you know, Beth and I were talking about this earlier that part of the problem seems to be that underlying all of this is the I read I was listening to a really interesting Freakonomics about um, the pay gap and this sort of what you're talking about, this growing gap between those who have access to resources and those who don't. And but they were talking about it specifically with regards to the gender pay gap and that it's not really it's not that. People in corporate America are like, you know what, I want to play women less because I value women less. That even when, when you try to break it down um, based on different income levels and all these sort of factors, really what it seems to be is that there's just there is um, a predominantly female role for caregiving. And that's because we don't as a society value caregiving, that right. that is where this that's where you start to see these differences accrue. And that's where you see that, oh, incredibly depressing American Historical Association um, study you talk about in your book where the married female historians, it takes them the longest to get tenure and the married men the least amount of time to get tenure, um, right. which is so depressing. But, um, and you know, I, I've been listening to a lot of, from Anne-Marie Slaughter who wrote the, the viral, you can't have it all piece about the yes. state department. And I, I really think that sort of the new discussion, which really fascinates me, particularly as the mother of three boys is that we've, and kind of changing this caregiving paradigm or in the, in changing gender paradigms, we've opened up a lot of the world to girls. And we've said you we push girls, you know, through Title IX and you can play sports and you can do these things. And that's OK. But what we haven't done is the equivalent for boys, which is make it OK for boys to be caregivers and to see to have these sort of traditionally, you know, they're, they're still undervalued. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable. Traditionally, the advice would be pick one. But thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ugh, ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka bra plum. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code podcast 15 that's code podcast 15 tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts good news ad free listening is available on amazon music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your prime membership stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the amazon music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Mm. 
Well, if I had my way, <laughs> I, <laughs> if I had my way, paid leave would be mandated for men and women. Right. That it would be, I mean, that's one of the key things we have to do, and it's one of the things that they do in some of the Nordic social democracies. They make the paid leave contingent. If the man doesn't take it, you lose it. Right. And that has actually, there have been great articles about how that's revolutionized attitudes about fatherhood and caregiving and masculinity in, you know, in those countries. Mm -hmm. And I think that really we need to do a similar thing here because, of course, what we know from many studies is that, okay, step one is is mandating the paid parental leave. But then if we get in a situation where only women are taking it, they're also still, even even if their jobs are protected and even if they are paid, which is great and we need to do that, you're still in a position where they're taking a step back from their careers that men are not taking. I mean, in my perfect world, um, you have a mandate that both both men and women take a period of paid leave. And that's one of the big steps that we would, that would wind up adjusting our attitudes about masculinity and about fatherhood. I do think that prolonged singlehood is making a difference for the division of domestic labor for men and women and in some of their, some of their gender goals because if they're, I mean, sort of, following up on what Susan B. Anthony said in 1877, which I write about in my book, if men and women are not getting their lives by marrying and just going into this unit where they're just assuming gender roles that they were trained for, if, in fact, they're living independently in the world as peers, um, you know, as colleagues, as friends, as people who may be in and out of sexual or romantic relationships with each other but not necessarily bound to each other for life, um, they are developing a better sense of each other as equals. They're also learning these skills so that you have this period of independence, whether it's a year, whether it's five years, 10 years, 20 years, or a whole life, in which not only are women supporting themselves economically, which historically they were not trained to do or encouraged to do or offered the opportunity to do, um, but you also have a period in which men are taking care of themselves domestically, learning to do their own laundry, feeding themselves, cooking for themselves, so that if and when they do partner um, with a woman, down the down the road, they're not going to necessarily come into that relationship with a set of domestic duties already in mind. You know, okay. they're, it, it makes it more likely to flow. It's slow, but it makes it more likely that they're going to divide the domestic responsibility along something other than traditional gender lines. So this is, a, I feel like this is a good transition when we're talking about working among men and challenging their um, attitudes about women to talk about Bernie Bros. Mm. <laughs> Because that is definitely part working among progressive men who said terribly, terribly sexist things about um, Hillary Clinton was part of why big girls don't cry came along and such an important part of my life because I had to work through some of that. But mm-hmm. I want um, we were talking about um, the Bernie Bros and Hillary and um, whether she the, sort of how she's challenging these traditional ideas about women. And we were we were playing a fun mental exercise about what would happen to um, all the Bernie bros. And we don't say just we don't use Bernie bros to describe all Bernie supporters. Want to clarify, we're using that term right, to, that's to, right. use, I don't, yeah. to describe Bernie supporters who are particularly sexist in their um, critiques of Hillary Clinton. Um, right. And, and I would refine that. I, I mean, my own definition. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that there are some people, not all of them, that um uh, many of even those who deploy sexist, sexist rhetoric or language also have very 
legit critiques of Clinton and mm-hmm. of course many legitimate reasons to support Sanders. So I would just I would add that clarification. I I try not I did write an article where I <laughs> that was headlined Bernie Bros in which I sort of said that the term in inside the article I tried not to use the word myself and I sort of said it's a little bit silly but this is why it exists. Um and so but I try not I think Bernie Bro got way overused early yeah. on. Yeah. And I I think it does um it has become something of a cartoon that doesn't necessarily represent what's really going on. So I try to be a little bit more specific about it. But yes, yeah, so I do. I do know of the phenomenon <laughs> of which you speak. Go on. Yes. Um, and we were we were talking about what if she, what if Hillary gets the nomination and then nominates Elizabeth Warren as her vice president? In which ways would this sort of implode? Not only people's general ideas about gender, but particularly these critiques about Clinton that, you know, oh, I'd be okay with Elizabeth Warren, which I always love your um, response. Well, yeah, it's easy to be great with a woman who's not actually running. Right. Well, okay. So there are a whole bunch of things to unpack in this. First of all, let me say up front that I hate the idea of, well, no, I don't hate it. Obviously, I love Elizabeth Warren and would love, I mean, I'd be thrilled to vote for her in any circumstance. Right. right. I, in fact, wrote a big piece in the New Republic uh, a year or two ago, really urging Elizabeth Warren to get in and run against Hillary, um, along with Kristen Gillibrand and Amy Klobuchar. I wanted to see more women in this primary. Um, yeah, so our last very- episode, we picked our dream ticket, and mine was Gillibrand and Cory Booker. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think Gillibrand will, you, you will see Gillibrand on a presidential ticket probably in your lifetime. I mean, I don't know that she'll win a nomination, but she's, you know, this is a woman who wants to be president, but not right now. So, Okay, however, that said, given that I really, really wanted Elizabeth Warren in challenging for the nomination itself, I hate, I hate the, for both Bernie and Hillary, the fantasy of like adding Warren to the ticket. Because Mm -hmm. to me, it's like she could so easily be the top of that ticket that I, and I I hate this around all, I mean, there's so much of it that, that I, that I can't stand. I mean, of course, if a man, if Bernie wins the nomination, you know, I think that there's a lot of, reason to put a woman on the ticket, but the idea of him putting Warren on the ticket would just turn my stomach because she could have totally had that nomination and been at the top of the ticket. I don't think she'd want to do it either. Um, and by the same token, the same thing with, with Hillary. Um, you know, Warren could have possibly beaten Hillary now. So there's that part. So I don't love the idea of Warren as a number two on a ticket, um, even though, of course, I love it because you're right. It would sort of short circuit a lot of brains. I think one of the things we saw after Massachusetts, though, I mean, I've been saying this for a while, as you said, about the Warren, but Elizabeth Warren, which is like I wanted to make, you know, sort of a sexist shield, like I'm not a sexist. Why? Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Warren. Um, And it's it's an interesting line of argument for a bunch of reasons. First of all, when Elizabeth Warren did run in Massachusetts um, for her Senate seat, uh, she was in a very close race. And people actually critiqued her in ways that are very familiar, even though she and Clinton are, she and Hillary are such different candidates. They have such different politics. I would never suggest that they are equivalent. However, um, the critiques of her on the campaign trail, people forget this, were that she was wooden, that she Mm. didn't communicate effectively with people, that she was elite. She was a Harvard professor. She didn't communicate. She was an ungainly campaigner. She wasn't a natural. She wasn't good at politics. Um, and I think people forget that. And I think in the fantasy that, like, if only Elizabeth Warren were running, everything would be great. We really lose the fact that this is, I mean, and the reasons for that probably are not unrelated to the reasons people say that about Hillary. It's a little bit of our own baggage about seeing a woman in this role, you know, no matter how much we like her or her politics. Um, 
seeing a woman in this role that we're not used to seeing a woman in, which is um, selling herself and telling us that we're supposed to vote for her. That's still a pretty uncomfortable position. We're just not used to it. It feels awkward and unnatural. And the women who are doing it feel wooden. Mm-hmm. And um, so there's that. And there's also probably the fact that men are in a variety of ways trained to sell themselves. <laughs> you know, not all right. of them, but there is, there's a whole group of men who, many of whom become politicians who sort of grew up being encouraged to tell people that they were, that they were wonderful and that you should vote for them. Um, and probably women are, you know, women still aren't socialized that way to be up there on a stump saying, I'm the best person for the job. Vote for me. I want to have this powerful position. There are all kinds of like reasons that we could say, you know, that we could be used to explain Warren and Clinton, the critique of both of them, that they're not naturals on the campaign trail. Also, just, you know, maybe they're not naturals on the campaign trail. Um, and, <laughs> I actually liked it and, when she said that the other day, when she just basically said, like, I'm just not that, I'm not as good a politician as my husband. And she was just like, that's just, that's, I'm not a natural. She said that herself the other day. Yeah, well, it's true. She's not. And uh, and you can sort of reach for these things, I mean, as I'm doing, and, and for some insight as to why, but in the end, it doesn't exactly matter if they're not naturals on the campaign trail. The second thing is I think Warren... Um, would have had she run for the nomination. And again, I'm of the belief that she could have taken it probably from both of these two. Um, however, I think it's a fantasy to say that everybody would have lined up behind her because I think that her gaps on foreign policy um, would have been much more apparent than they are for Bernie. Bernie also has big gaps on foreign policy, but he has gotten away with it in a way that I find it highly improbable that Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts would have gotten away with it. Um, and then there's the other thing, which is that you know, Warren doesn't really want to be president. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. This is not based on insight. This is based on my sense. She doesn't uh, strike me as a person who wants to be president. I think she's aware of the power that she has in the Senate. She can do a lot more in many ways from the Senate than she can do as president. I don't think she has the fire for it. I think she's a very, obviously, a very ambitious person with big goals that she's pursuing, and I admire her so much. I don't think her particular goals include being president of the United States. That is part of what makes her so much more palatable because it is still more comfortable, and I do think this is gendered because we have had hundreds of years of dudes who have, like, wanted to be president, (laughs) and that powers their way toward the presidency. And here we have a woman right now in Hillary who also really wants to be president, and it is totally distasteful. Even to those of us who defend her, it's like, yeah, no, I know, she just against, you know, she just wants, she has strategized, she's contorted herself, she's done all kinds of things that generations of men have done before her um, to get to a position where she can be viable for the presidency, and she's probably done more contortions and more intense strategizing because she's so anomalous in this field. And so, but it's one of the things that makes her so distasteful to us. And because Warren isn't motivated by a desire to be president, she hasn't done those kinds of that kind of contorting. And that makes her a much more palatable figure. But by the same token, she doesn't want to be president. Right. So it's kind of a disqualifying quality. The other thing I would say is I think we already have our evidence <laughs> to some degree for like exactly how far the admiration for Elizabeth Warren extends. Oh yeah, because, that's so true. Right. <laughs> because uh you know, when she didn't endorse Bernie and and not certainly not all Bernie supporters and not all Hillary critics went after her, but there was a very vocal segment of Bernie supporters who really went after her in an intense way after she didn't endorse Bernie in Massachusetts. And 
it was interesting to me because a lot of these are the same people who are saying, oh, no, I trust Elizabeth Warren. I would do what, you know, I, I love Elizabeth Warren. I definitely am not sexist because I would trust Elizabeth Warren. And all Elizabeth Warren did was not endorse the candidate. She didn't endorse the opponent. Right. All she did was not endorse Bernie. And there are any number of various – I was thrilled that she didn't endorse either of them. You know, right. I would have been I would have been because she has so much power and I think it's a brilliant use of her power is to withhold. And, um, you know, and I think she made a very smart decision, but all, you know, a certain segment of a Bernie supporting population, probably people who would have said, of course, I'm not sexist. I love Elizabeth Warren were very ready to go after her as basically traitorous and you know, again, in for for qualities that I think mark the way they sometimes talk about Hillary Clinton, that you're, you know, you're a fake, you're not. I mean, the things that people were saying about her, you're a phony, you're not a real progressive, you don't you don't care, you're just in it for power, you're just you know, all these things were said about Elizabeth Warren, and it was very interesting to me. It was like, oh, I guess you don't, you know, <laughs> I guess. You don't totally trust your judgment. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I think what's interesting about the thought exercise of two women on the ticket, even if you remove Elizabeth Warren, but may- maybe a Gillibrand or someone else, you know, and I'm a Republican. I don't I don't have any particular attachment to Hillary Clinton other than right. I think what she's done is so powerful. And when I think about her as secretary of state and her enormous popularity in that role, I mean, that's a big deal. That's a very uh, male position in traditional framing, right? But there's well, still although this it's check been, of... Although it has been the thing that has belonged to women for the past three. Yeah. It was before it was Hillary, it was Condoleezza Rice, before that it was Madeleine Albright. So it's actually weirdly the position that has, in recent memory, been the one that it's been okay to feminize. But yes, you're right. She, you know, she was very strong Secretary of State. Well, I think that I think all three of them were, you know, strong figures in their own rights. Um, but there's always this like check of the male president on them. And I and I think that in some ways, maybe people who are uncomfortable with the female president will see a male vice president as sort of still that sort of balance of things. I, I would almost love to see her just go at it and say, no, like we don't talk about two men on the ticket is a big deal. So let's have a, a ticket with two women. I, I would really love to see that. It's interesting. The person who's been pushing her on that is Rachel Maddow. I've seen Rachel Maddow ask her about it several times. And I think Rachel Maddow particularly wants to see her nominate Claire McCaskill, which is interesting. Rachel Maddow loves Claire McCaskill. <laughs> um, and um, I've seen her ask about that several times. So she's also on the thing. I, I mean, I think it's unlikely, but I would love it. I'd be thrilled. It's like it's like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying how many women should be on the Supreme Court? Nine. Why? Why are right. we talking about this? There should be nine. So I, th- right. I was Beth and I were talking um, about this before you came on that she feels like. Well, I'll let you take say how you feel about um, her, how she's interviewed, Beth. I won't speak for you. Oh, about Rebecca. Yeah. So, so I love it when you're on television, Rebecca. I just think your work is, is really important. And it, I feel like whenever you're interviewed, it's, it's sort of with this lens. And I, I hope that we're not doing this today, but this lens of like the particular things that you've written your books about. And I know there's a media reality to that, but I just wonder if you feel, um, that your voice is fully heard when you, when you do media appearances. And if you think that that there are any kind of larger, implications to take from how women on panels generally are um, used in, in especially like the Sunday shows. Well, we were laughing too, because we were talking about the SNL feminist anthem. And like, if you're the feminist author, do you ever feel like, Oh God, I don't want to like be in the box about this and have to speak to the, the quote unquote feminist point of view. 
Well, I don't ever mind doing that because I am because that's my job and it's my chosen job. Like I, it's, I don't view it as a box because for, I agree that that's and I know many of my colleagues who feel that way. For me, being the feminist perspective isn't a limiting thing, right? Because I actually have a I feel like my feminist perspective extends in many directions. For me, I don't I don't mind talking offering my feminist perspective because my feminist perspective sort of is just the lens through which I view the world. So I can be talking, I don't have to be talking about a woman candidate. I can be talking about Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Mm. And I am still comfortable offering the feminist perspective on them. I'm comfortable offering a feminist perspective on television, on movies, on culture, on books. You know, this is, this is okay. But, um, do I think, you know, there's some, there's some media that is great about, you know, taking, uh, women's voices seriously. I mean, <clears throat> you know, one of the places where I've had um, great experiences has been on MSNBC, um, significantly on Melissa Harris Perry's show, um, which has just Melissa Harris Perry and MSNBC have recently parted ways. Um, and that's we were bemoaning where, that in our last episode. We're just devastated. Yeah, it's a it's it's a tragedy because that show was a show that put women's voices and voices of color um, front and center. And it is so unique in that regard. That's the show where I met Anita Hill, who's in my, who's in my book. It's where I've met, I've met so many people who I would never have a chance to meet on other television, um, in other television contexts where it's usually I'm the diversity mm-hmm. as the lady with like seven white guys. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but it was on Melissa Harris Perry's show that I met so many of like my mo- most respected, um, writers, uh, historians, academics, activists, people who just don't get other, um, the television doesn't showcase in other ways. And the loss of that show is tremendous. Um, but also the fact that it was on for so long and did so much good work is also tremendous. I mean, it just brought a lot of people to the forefront who, who are usually just kept off of television. So, and I would say that even though this is a show hosted by a white guy, Chris Hayes' show where I, I am often a guest, is good about those things too. Um, you know, I, I think that Chris takes more care than other hosts um, to not have just white guys. Um, and I have always felt that um, as a guest on his show, that my perspective is equally valued. Now, does that mean every time I go on television, uh, <laughs> and I mean, you know, that, that that's my experience? No, I certainly am sometimes made acutely aware of the fact that I'm the girl. And in fact, I'm not going to say where this was, but I, I have had experiences on television where, you know, somebody has had to pass a note partway through a panel discussion to remind one of the hosts to ask me a question, you know? <gasps> oh um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's not always, it's not always smooth sailing. Well, let me um, say this before we run out of time and cause we could ask you questions and don't need somebody to pass us a note. I, I will say with, to your point about the women's voices, the most beautiful part of your book for me was you did such an incredible job of illustrating all these female. You talked to so many different women from so many different perspectives, did a, just a truly wonderful job of illustrating um, their different journeys. I felt like I was friends with them. I'm really rooting for Sarah. I hope she's doing good. Um, she's doing great. Good. And uh, Fra- and Frances Kissling, who I knew about, but like what a radical rocking, just challenging me on every page. I just thought you did 
if as you're praising other people, let me praise you for doing that in your book. It wasn't just, you know, this walk through studies and history, which were fascinating, but I thought the way that you interviewed women of all different um, life experiences and diversity, it was just, it was really, really, really wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. It's such a privilege to talk with you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, Sarah, I hope that that was everything that you dreamed of, because I know Rebecca Traster is like your favorite. Yeah, everything and more. Absolutely. (laughs) So we fought in the heels because, again, we're all feeling a little bit worn down by this political season that we would talk about some things that we're enjoying or looking forward to right now. Sarah, do you want to start? Yes, I am enjoying Togetherness, which is a show on HBO. It's in its second season. I don't know why... I'm just now watching it. I mean, it's totally my key demo. Like, the, it's a couple. They have young kids. His best friend loses his job and moves in. Her sister decides to move to L.A. and move in. And so it's like this very family, um, yupster sort of situation, which is basically <laughs> my life. But it's the Duplass brothers who I'm a big fan of. It's really well written, and it's really sweet and hilarious, and I... I'm enjoying it so, so much. And I am looking forward to binge watching the first two seasons as soon as my husband is caught up with me. Um, it's been, it's really fun. I'm also just generally, even though I just said I want to stay inside and watch TV, I'm also just really enjoying spring, which is starting to spring, sprung around Paducah. And it's my favorite time of year in my hometown. It's so beautiful everywhere you go. So it's a nice, it's a nice contrast to some of the ugliness we were discussing earlier. Yeah, similarly, I'm really excited that it's almost baseball season. (laughs) Um, I love baseball so much. Actually, all sports. So I love March Madness. Um, My husband wanted me to mention, this is kind of embarrassing, but the two of us met watching March Madness at a place in Lexington called, wait for it, Trump's. Um, And (laughs) so (laughs) that is our uh, couple origin story. But then later, our first official date was at a Reds game. And we've been huge fans since then. And we have a share of season tickets because, you know, there are like thousands of baseball games. So you can only have like a part, you know, unless you do nothing but watch baseball, you have to have just a share. So we sit right behind home plate. We have these amazing seats. And there's just nothing I like more than being at a baseball game, especially like in the evening when the weather's just perfect. I feel like it's a lot about being outside for me and being outside where you can't possibly like pull some weeds or do anything productive. You know, you're just sitting and enjoying. I love the people watching. I love the food. I love everything about baseball. So I'm and it's just, you know, that like piece of Americana too. like there's just nothing like being at a baseball game and hearing the national anthem. And it all just feels so quaint so did you know that my cousin is a professional baseball player I did not know this about you yes he is the relief his name is Aaron Barrett and he is the relief pitcher for the Washington Nationals how very exciting he was out for a while because he had surgery on his arm but he's back I think I'm I'm assuming he's at spring training right now um yeah it's really cool I still haven't got to see him play in a game um but yeah he's he's like he's like a mountain of a person he's a big guy it's very cool we should figure out if the Nationals will play in Cincinnati and you should come visit. Yes. And receive yes. the game. We that would be so that. fun. Planned. Because fun fact, we've not been in the same room together like Since. what? 11 years, 12 yeah. years? Yeah. Something like for, that. Good, good fun, fun <laughs> insight for our listeners to know. That's yeah. Right. We haven't actually seen each other's faces in 
a very, very long time. Yeah. So a little behind the scenes of pantsuit politics there. It's going to be a tough season for Reds fans. I'm not going to lie. I do not expect. But that's the thing about baseball for me. Like I can enjoy the process without being attached to the outcome. And thank God, because I that's, like baseball that's what games, being a Reds fan is. But I'm not going to be like sitting down watching baseball on the TV. But I like go. I like going to baseball games. But as far as I mean, I don't like sports. It's just it's just the reality of the situation. It's just not my thing. You know what's interesting? Like, I used to be that way, too. And the, the more I, like, the older I get, the more I like sports. I can't figure out what this is in me. But I feel like the, I feel like I'm starting to identify with how men use sports to escape a little <laughs> bit. So, like, at work, when something is really bothering me, like, I go find my friends who are big college basketball fans and just chat about that for a minute. I'm like, ah, oh, I feel better. I have sort of taken my brain somewhere else and it's oh, good. okay. That I makes know. sense. I feel that. I feel that. Yeah. Okay. I'll dig it. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics, whether you're a sports fan or not. Um, again, a huge thank you to Beth's sister and her partner for our new music. Um, a thank you to our husbands. And we should add that now, Chad, um, Beth's husband, is producing um, some of the podcasts. So it's a, it's a real team effort at this point. we got to get our kids involved somehow. That's true. <laughs> um, and as always, if you could um, rank and review us on iTunes, it helps other people find Pantsuit Politics. Thanks, everybody. Keep it nuanced, y'all.